Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Uh, we're getting to the end of our uh, this year's uh, structured study of uh, the three marks of existence. And this sutta, the Anapanasati Sutta, I'll be teaching it over two classes because it's a rather long sutta. Um, and this sutta is, uh, again, it's one of the most misinterpreted, misunderstood suttas. Uh, it's not an entire teaching on different meditation methods, which is how this uh, sutta is often used to teach this endless list of um, meditation practices that the Buddha never taught. The Buddha just taught jhana meditation. The Anapanasati Sutta is an example of everything that we learned in the previous four months. This is what that practice results in. And the Buddha is using accomplished senior monks, and this is early in the, uh, the Buddha's dispensation. There are no nuns yet in the Sangha. <coughs> And he's using as an example actual Dhamma practitioners. He's not using as an example some esoteric concept that is unknowable and unreachable for ordinary human beings. He's using accomplished human beings as an example of his Dhamma. And he's using his Dhamma as an example of the Dhamma itself. Uh, it's, both, it's both an incredibly practical way of explaining his Dhamma, but also a brilliant way. He's saying... These are people who actually did it. You don't have to take anything that I'm saying on faith, because there is no faith in, in the, the Buddha's Dhamma. It's just an example. This is the Ahipasiko uh, Sutta. This is the Sutta that shows what is meant by Ahipasiko. Come and see for yourself. Because all of these examples of authentic Dhamma practice are prerequisites for a complete understanding. But they're, they're not... Um, impossible to develop prerequisites. There are prerequisites that are gently developed within the framework of the Dhamma. The Anapanasate Sutta. Uh, the subtitle is Mindfulness of Breathing, meaning this is the result of a Dhamma that is founded on actual jhana meditation, which itself is rooted in mindfulness of the breath. I have heard that on one occasion the Buddha was staying at Savati in the eastern monastery. This was during, during the Opasata month of the full moon. It was, just, it was a day that was set aside for um, focused gatherings. There was nothing terribly special about that. It was just that this was the day that they decided monthly that they would get together uh, as a sangha for... Um, really reviewing their Dhamma practice that month. Again, nothing special about it. It wasn't that the full moon had some energ energetic about it that was special. Every month there was a full moon, so it was easy to pick out, okay, on the full moon we're going to get together because those knew that when it was a three-quarter moon, in a few days they're going to be getting together. That's all. Many of the elder disciples were with him. And there's a whole long list that I won't go through, beginning with uh, Saraputta and Mogalana. During this time, the elder monks 
were teaching the Dhamma. They were each teaching novice monks with groups ranging in size from 10 to as large as 40. So very early in the Buddhist teaching career, a, a teaching model was established that wasn't based on hierarchy, it was based on understanding. In other words, these novice monks weren't told you're going to be a novice monk for three years and you, you first are taught by someone who is just above you in the hierarchy and they would hand you off to someone else and they would hand you off to someone else. There was no hierarchy. There were people that didn't yet know the Dhamma or didn't quite yet know the complete Dhamma and there were those that did. And that's who taught it. Period. The new monks were, were learning quickly and correctly. The Buddha arrived and was seated in the open air surrounded by the community of monks. Surveying the silent community, he was impressed by the silence. Surveying the silent community, he addressed them. Monks, I am pleased with what is taking place here and the dedication to develop the Dhamma and the realization of Nibbana, meaning actually taking it to its conclusion. Excuse me. The Buddha is saying, I'm recognizing here that we're not, we're not here as a social gathering just trying to take up... Um, just trying to establish another distraction in our lives. We're actually doing something here. And as such, I will remain here at Sabati for another month through the fourth month of the realms. Typically, the Buddha would stay for three months. The fourth month was the, uh, the cessation of the rainy period, the monsoon season in northern India, and it was time to start moving around again. And again, there was no other significance to those three months, save that it was impractical to walk around northern India during the monsoon season. The Buddha is saying that a well-focused and well-informed Sangha is important even to him. And even now that he's seeing that what has developed here is a well-informed and well-focused Sangha, that he'll hang around for another month because of that. It's a remarkable statement that the Buddha is saying, based on the quality of this Sangha, I'll stay with you. If the, the, the Sangha was still unfocused, the Buddha was leaving it up to the, to the senior monks and later the senior monks and nuns to develop a Sangha that was well-focused. He's also saying that you don't need him to do it. These monks here are fully capable of developing the Dhamma to that point and developing the Sangha to that point. The monks in the surrounding countryside heard, heard this, that the Buddha was going to hang around for a while and left for Savati to join the Buddha and that Sangha. A short time later, the Buddha addressed a large but quiet community. Monks, this community of monks is free from idle chatter. He starts, right, he starts off right from the, the establishment of right speech within that Sangha. He's using that simple and practical development as an example of why he's here and why he's addressing this particular sangha. This community of monks is free of idle chatter and is established on pure heartwood, meaning it's established on the Eightfold Path. This community of monks, this, not, this community is worthy of gifts and worthy of hospitality. There's a value judgment there, isn't there? And it's a value judgment based on the sincerity and the value of each individual Dharma practitioner. 
Because of that, this Sangha is worthy of gifts. It's worthy of hospitality. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be worthy of it within the framework of the Dhamma. And some people would say that's exclusive. In fact, what it is, is entirely inclusive to those that have the willingness and the courage to actually practice the Dhamma. The, the Buddha is including everyone who's willing to practice the Dhamma, this safe and well-focused place. And to those that aren't, he's not. That's not being cruel. That's the essence of compassion married to true wisdom. Because he knew by, by establishing a community that was unfocused, that some would see as exclusive, was in fact was, was in fact excluding those that would hope to practice just the Dhamma. Does everybody follow me there? That's wisdom. And it's also courage. It's the courage that we all practice in this Sangha by saying, yes, we agree we're going to practice the Dhamma and nothing else. During this time we're together, when we meet as a Sangha, we are an example of the Anapanasati Sutta. This community is worthy of offerings and worthy of respect. Excuse me. This community will bring much good for the world. You've heard me say it over and over again. The most loving thing I can do for myself and all other sentient beings is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. Due to their establishment in the heartwood of the Dhamma, the Eightfold Path, when a small gift is given to this community, it becomes great, and a great gift even greater. This community of monks is rare to see in the world. Think about that statement. Even during the Buddha's time, while the Buddha was teaching, it was rare to see a well-focused and well-informed Sangha. This community of monks is rare to see in the world. This community of monks is such that it would be worth traveling for leagues taking along provisions in order to learn from. So rather than finding a convenient spiritual community that is unfocused, you might want to consider finding a well-focused, well-informed Sangha that's worth traveling for leagues to actually learn from. In this community of monks, there, there are monks who are arahants. Arahants are awakened human beings who have fully developed the Eightfold Path and whose mental effluence have ended. These arahants have completed the task and have laid down the burden of, the burden of continued eye-making. They have attained the true goal and abandoned the fetter of becoming further ignorant. They are released through right understanding. Such is this community of monks. In this community of monks, there are monks who, abandoning the five lower fetters, are totally unbound from clinging to ignorant views. Their minds are continually resting in equanimity. Such are the monks in this community of monks. The five lower feathers, fetters are self-referential views, grasping at rituals and practices, grasping at anything you think that in a rote manner will deliver you, deliver you from your own ignorance without actually doing anything to change your mind. Much of modern Buddhism is based on just that engaging in right, endless rites and rituals that somehow will transform you from an ignorant human being 
to a human being rooted in, is, in wisdom without gaining any actual knowledge. It doesn't work. Uncertainty or lack of conviction, one of the, the, one of the major modern Buddhist schools teaches that uncertainty is something, doubt is uncertainty, that that's to be cultivated, that, that we should dive deep into our doubt. The Buddha teaches us to simply recognize that there's doubt and abandon it. Ill will towards oneself and others. That's often cultivated, especially in a modern Buddhist practice that is also corrupted by the woke mentality. Ill will towards oneself and others. That, that self-hatred, self-loathing. In this community of monks, there are monks who, abandoning the first three fetters and with the eliminating of passion, aversion, and deluded thinking, have established a heartwood and will make ending and will make an ending to stress, an ending to dukkha. They are, sorry, I had trouble reading it. They are in the stream of the Dhamma, resolute, developing the cessation of suffering. Their minds are inclined towards awakening. Such are the monks in this community of monks. In this community of monks, there are monks who remain devoted to the development of the four frames of reference, the four foundations, the four right exertions, I'm sorry, the four bases of power, the five faculties, the five strengths, the seven factors of awakening, the noble and the noble eightfold path. Such are the monks in this community of monks. And now we'll look, the Buddha is going to explain what those are. The four frames of reference, the four foundations of mindfulness. I think I'm going to stop right there. Hold on one second. Now, let me just go over this. I'm going to stop shortly. We'll take up part two next week. The four foundations of mindfulness are mindfulness, mindfulness of the breath and the body, mindfulness of feelings arising and passing away, mindfulness of thoughts arising and passing away, and mindfulness of the present quality of mind that is always changing as well. The four right efforts are the right effort, which is avoiding inappropriate thoughts, words, and deeds that have yet arisen, that's practicing wise restraint. Right effort is, it ab is abandoning inappropriate thoughts, words, and deeds that have arisen. How do we do that? We do that by deepening our concentration so that we can recognize it when it occurs. Right effort is developing appropriate thoughts, words, and deeds that have yet arisen. Again, jhana meditation is required for that. And right effort is maintaining appropriate thoughts, words, and deeds for continuing development of non-confusion and skillful qualities that have arisen. Again, confusion and refined mindfulness is necessary for that. The four bases of power. This is what we develop in the Dhamma as necessary bases of power in order to continue. Calm rooted in concentration, rooted in jhana. Persistence rooted in that very concentration. There can be no persistence without at least a measure of, of jhana, without at least a measure of concentration. Right intention rooted in that. How are we going to maintain right intention, the intention to recognize and abandon all views rooted in ignorance of four noble truths without at least a small measure of concentration? Wisdom rooted in that very concentration. The five faculties. What, what are we developing within us? Conviction. Enthusiasm, right mindfulness, knowing what to hold in mind, concentration and wisdom. The five strengths that are developed within that are conviction, 
conscience. Conscience, which is, which is true and skillful regret at unskillful behavior, having the ability to recognize it and abandon it because we recognize it as such. Concern for the suffering of ourselves and others and persistence for integrating the path as well as wisdom and discernment. Skip ahead a little bit. And the seven factors of awakening. These are, these are what we all need to develop awakening. These are the seven factors that each Dhamma practitioner cultivates. Mindfulness, but refined mindfulness. Penetrating investigation of the Dhamma. Enthusiasm, rapture, which is joyful engagement with the Dhamma. Calm, concentration, and equanimity. Within the Dhamma, we develop and integrate the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view, or right understanding, right intention, or right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation. In this community of monks, there are monks who remain devoted to the development of goodwill and, compa- and compassion, to concentration and equanimity. That's what we're devoted to as Dhamma practitioners. Goodwill and compassion, concentration and equanimity. They understand the relentless decay of the body and impermanence, the arising and the passing away of all conditioned things. Such are the monks in this community. In this community of monks, there are monks who remain devoted to mindfulness of the in-and-out breathing, devoted to jhana meditation. Mindfulness of the in-breath and the out-breath when appropriately developed, is of great benefit. Mindfulness of the in, of in-breath and out-breath, when appropriately developed, supports concentration necessary and brings the four foundations of mindfulness to their culmination. Oh, give me a second. I think I'm going to stop there as the end of part one. You want to f- end up with friends? Is this the direct path for the purification? <clears throat> That's kind of the end of. Yeah, but I lost my place now. Uh-huh. Is this the next line now? How is mindfulness of the in and out breath? No, that is the beginning of. Uh, the section on mindfulness of the in and out breathing. The end of the previous section is friends. This is the direct path for the purification of. Yeah, the but that's what I mean. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Thank you, Ram. The Buddha's words, friends. This is direct path for the purification of all beings, for the cessation of sorrow and regret, for the disappearance of pain and distress, for establishing the right method of practice, and for complete unbinding. In other words the four foundations of mindfulness. That's a, we'll, we'll end there and take it up next week. Uh, let's start right here. Brett, how are you tonight? Um, good. Good to be here. Um, I can definitely, I uh, was at a party this weekend and, uh, uh, you know, it was, everybody was talking and, and uh, I, I can't say, there's portions of that where I didn't, I, I, I went, you know, I was, you know, I, I had, pretty good right speech but then you know there's 
when I went home, I said, you know, is, is that necessary? Is that necessary to kind of talk like that in a way? I mean, it was just, just idle chatter, just social. Well, it was, yeah, it was yeah. maybe something like that. It was, you know, a little bit of idle chatter and just different things like that. But I just think it was like unnecessary things that I had, might have said. It wasn't over the top or anything like that, but I'm just like, some things that just don't need to be said. Yeah. And uh, when you're in a group of people, and uh, I think it has a lot to do with that. And then, uh, like, you know, today I'm working and I, you know, I, I, I'd like to get to, I'm, get, I'm, I'm getting to a better, you know, place, more focused on my breath, more concentrated, but things come up and then being conscious enough to say, you know, I don't, would, I, I wouldn't like to have these thoughts, you know, yeah. I was one of the four, was it four, uh, something of mindfulness, the four, uh, the four foundations of mindfulness? Yeah, four yeah. foundations of mindfulness. Yeah, it, thank you, Brett, and, and it, it's so important that you recognize that, but also so important, and I, and I know you're doing it, is, is that you're gentle with yourself when you recognize that. Um, it's, I, I, I often say this, I think it's, in general, much more easier to develop and practice and develop the Dhamma for someone who is living in a monastery-like setting, removed from the world, because you're not... It, it's nearly impossible to live in the world and not be in social engage, in a social engagement where people are engaged in idle chatter. How's the weather? You know, talking about politics or talking about shopping or whatever it might be, you know, the water cooler kind of stuff. And so how do you live in the world and, and not engage in idle chatter? Well, I, personally, I think you've got to have a, a certain amount of balance because you're... As a Dhamma practitioner... You can contribute to the tension in the world and seem aloof by not by not engaging in anything in the world by just simply walking in the world walking through the world mute and that's not that's not someone who um, is living gracefully in the world. You have your own walls up and you're using the Dhamma in that way. So we learn to live in the world. I'm not. I I, I was never any good at idle chatter. But I used to think there was something wrong with me. You know, when you, when you're a young kid, maybe you're 14 or 15, and you're starting to go to, to parties after you're self-aware. When you're eight, nine, you don't care about this anyway. You just act like a human being without thinking about it. But by the time you're in your mid-teens, you become very self-aware. And so I started, you know, going into the social things, whether it was on the baseball field or at a Friday night dance. And I just could not stand making stuff up to talk about. And I was seen as socially awkward, and I put it on myself. Well, you're shy, and you, you know all this stuff that that are labeled or put labels put on people who who just don't enjoy that. And I never did. I just never liked idle chatter. Um, and it wasn't until I came to the Buddha's Dhamma and realized, well, maybe that wasn't such a bad thing. So what I'm saying is that we need to there needs to be a balance, but also as Dhamma practitioners we can be mindful of not putting ourselves in positions where we're going to be forced to engage in idle chatter. And again, it doesn't mean that we should never be in a social situation where we might be, but just to be aware of it. So I'm, I'm pretty mindful of, uh, not pretty, I am mindful of situations that I might get myself in. And oftentimes I choose not to do it simply because it's not a place for me. I don't, I, I can't, I can't spend an evening going from one idle chatter conversation to another. It's just uncomfortable for me, so I don't do it. What I'm, but what I'm saying is, if you find that comfortable for you and you do it, go and do it. And don't, don't second-guess yourself for doing it. 
But what Brett is talking about is finding himself in situations that he has his whole life, and now he's finding them possibly not acceptable to him. And he's making a decision. Does he want to be involved in these situations or not? And at some point, I would bet that Brett's going to say, no, those are things that I'd rather not be involved in. I've done that. And so my life is, is very, very quiet. Some people would say brutally quiet. They wouldn't want anything to do with my life. And that's okay, too. Thank you, Brett. Hello, Thanks. Ron. Hi, John. Um, yeah, this is really the, the mother load of, of practice. Yeah. Um, and, and what popped out for me um, that last section that I wanted you to read, because uh, here he says, this is the direct path for establishing the right method of practice. Here's, here's the, the, the foundation of your practice. Yeah. Everything that, that comes that comes up in it is mentioned here. Yes, everything. And there's nothing ambiguous about it, is there? No, it, no. It, it, it's it, this. It looks you... like a long laundry list, but if you if you look at it carefully, you'll see that all of these are just facets. Yes. Of, of practice. Yes, there, it, there, it's like it's like the Dhamma is this beautiful jewel, and these are just facets of that of that one jewel. They're all, they're, you, could, you could also say they all explain dependent origination and Four Noble Truths, too. The right. Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the, 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 the fetters, certainly, the five lower fetters certainly explain dukkha, don't they? That's why they're taught. So it's such a complete Dhamma practice when you understand the scope of the Dhamma, but like I think David's going to say, I'm going to put words in his mouth, but it's also... A compelling entry point to the Dhamma for those that see it correctly. That leads directly, and thank you, Ron, that leads directly to David. This sutta has, from the very beginning, meant for me how to do it and why I'm doing it. Mm. And at different points, I was doing it absolutely wrong because I was enamored by the list and learning the list, and then as my practice developed, it became clear that there's a beauty to how the Buddha is teaching and, and how the senior monks are teaching. And uh, Again, I've probably heard you say this super ten times, and I've read it anymore. It, it, means, uh, it, it means how to do it. Yep. And I, I always come back to this, and uh, the very first lines are just, how do you conduct yourself in this place with your Sangha members? So, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Thank you, David. And, and it also shows where, how, like, one aspect is the foundation for the next one. Yeah. And how all these things uh, rest on top of each other or support each other in, in, in different ways. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, it's a jewel. It's, it's this, this growing thing. Um, it, it, it look more carefully at this sutta. It's, it's a beautiful yeah. construct. It really, thank and you. And is a beautiful construct. It, this is, a, to me, this... I, another word for thought constructs would be ideas. Ideas are, are formed thoughts, aren't they? Whether, no matter how elaborate it might be or how simple it might be. And so the Buddha's Dhamma is about introducing 
ideas that are contradictory to the way that we would think when our minds are rooted in ignorance. But they're, they're so gently contradictory that we can accept them and work with them. And that's what this, there's nothing in this sutta that should scare anybody away. But, not but, and if I have a mind that's inclined towards magic and mysticism and I read these, and I'm still interested when I get done with the sutta, the sutta itself is starting to incline my way, my mind away from that mysticism. And it, and it, does, and it did that with David. Even though David's mind wasn't rooted in magic and mysticism, he didn't naturally go there. He, what he just described was reading the sutta and understanding enough, and I would argue with one thing, David, that you did something wrong, because I think you did exactly, you, you practiced the Dhamma exactly as, as it was meant, by recognizing that your practice wasn't skillful at, at one point, and now it was. Can, did I put words in your mouth, or was that... I would say at the time, you corrected me in how I was looking at... Lack of a better term, the list. And I, I was, at the time, early... I was almost using that as a way to uh, meditate. Yeah, and yeah. It, it was essentially a fancy counting method because I was going through the lists and I was, it was getting, my body was just not used to sitting. Yeah. But then as I got more comfortable and obviously your concentration deepens, then as things arose, I, I was like, oh, that's where that comes from. And then it just disappeared. And now it's just incorporated in how I am. So it, it was just at that time, maybe a year into my practice, that it, it, it was just uh, where I was at. Yeah, it, it, it the uh, while you were talking, I was thinking that this. I, I can't I can't get this thought clear clear enough to explain it I'm so deep uh, it's the utter obviousness of the of the conclusions that we come to that are that are so surprising to me and I think that when you start grasping this like the the seven factors of awakening when you first come across it maybe the first hundred times you come across it are it, they might not even make any sense. But I, when you put them in the context of the Dhamma, it's sure, these are, this is just what I do. This is what a human being always does when they're awakening. It's just that way. It's just simple and direct. So, and thank you. Specifically on those, he, he shows how one rests on the other. Yeah. And it, 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 again, it's, the, the, this is a complete, a complete explanation and dispensation of the Buddha's Dhamma. And None of it is unachievable or unreachable or un even un un understandable. It's just right there. I mean, early, early on, I saw those seven factors of awakening as a absolute antidote to the hindrances I was experiencing. Yeah, I remember you talking about yeah, that. And, uh, and it, to me, it was just a convenient way to put it in my mind at that time how I was thinking things through. I think that was on a one of your maybe your first retreat when you talked about it, just that. And yeah. Again, it was very simplistic. Not that that's not a bad thing, but 
you know, I still keep those factors in my mind at all times. And uh, again, it's just show up and it becomes part of how you think. Yeah, that is changing. Brett's a perfect example. Changing an idea. That's what, he, that's what Brett just described. Yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly what he's going, going yeah. through right now. Yeah, the idea that, that I should be a great social conversationist, or the idea that maybe I don't need to waste my breath all the time doing it with this distraction. And when you, when you understand it that way, maybe I don't need to be distracting other people with my social engagements. Well, I, mean, I, I mean, I've said it to quite a few people, and they're not the only one who says it, that the, the, um, the sign of a true friendship is two people that can get together and not have to talk. They can just sit quietly with each other. Or I would say this, this, the, the, it, it's also a sign of a good marriage that you could, or any, any type of that type of, of a relationship. You can just sit quietly with each other and be at peace. You know, that not that many people can do it. No. It tells you something about you know, where, where a person's at. Right, Jane? Right, John. I've often been accused of being quiet. I was going to say, I, we've had a couple of quiet moments on retreat. It wasn't uncomfortable for me. I hope it no, wasn't for you. I, you know, and I always thought there was something wrong with me, too. Why? Yeah. But, um, so don't feel bad, John. No, I mean, I, it, it, there's other good examples of why there's something wrong with me, but it's not that. It's not my social awkwardness. <laughs> I'm glad you joined um, us tonight. Oh, I wanted to say something oh, else, too. I appreciate please. how well-focused our sangha is. Um, when I log in, I mean, y'all are already talking about the Dhamma. Yeah. And, uh, of course, our classes are always on the Dhamma, and then when I log out, I, I feel that you're probably still talking about the Dhamma, having conversations and... I know when I when I log off, I mean I'm still working through things. Yeah, I was I gonna like Michael and Julia, or you know, have talks on the Dharma. Yeah, they live the Dharma together. You know, so it's we're really well focused. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I was gonna make a, a joke as I often do, uh, and it doesn't deserve a joke because that really is. I I consider myself so fortunate to be a part of this sangha because. My whole life, I wasn't. I was a Buddhist practitioner, but I never found a sangha like this one. And again, you, I, I do take some credit for it, but I'm not responsible for all of you and everybody that comes to these classes. You know, you you all are doing it, and you're you make me comfortable and continue to be enthusiastic because of your developing the Dhamma, and I see it. I see it in you. I see. It. I guess Brian's the, the newest member, and he's developed the Dhamma so nicely. Uh, and I think about uh, Michael and, and Julia and how they came to, you know, from such a different place, and they're vital members. All of us, we, we just contribute to this wonderful, well-focused Sangha. Uh, I think I cling to it, though. That's the only problem. I crave for it, and I cling to it. What do you think, Julia? agree with you when you said that we're a very well focused sangha it is it is like a um, you know it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a sanctuary it's a, mm-hmm. it's a place you know where we can all be at at peace and be with each other with, with like-minded individuals you know mm-hmm. so it does it's, it's a good it's a good place you know mm-hmm. I was thank you, I was thank you Joel. I was speaking with I think it was Matteo I had a meeting with Matteo our from our London sangha who's also in teacher training right now and that one of the things that he said that it, it, the the warmth of our sangha and the welcoming nature of our sangha comes through even on these Zoom sessions. We were talking about 
you know, it's not ideal that we were meeting on Zoom, but that was his comment that, that we all come through and make him. And when you think about that, here's a, you know, a guy who's um, he's thousands of miles away and isolated in his own, you know, COVID deal. And we were able to reach him to the point that he committed to become a teacher. That's, that's pretty remarkable. And, and you know, we're all, uh, it's just a, such a great example of, of spreading the Dhamma when we're all doing it. Michael, and Michael's such a great help with that. Hi, everybody. Uh, the Dhamma meets you where you are. Uh, we always mention that in class. And uh, uh, it's I, I oftentimes remind myself that, that whatever is occurring is, is, uh, is moment by moment, uh, so to say, yes, the Dhamma is applicable in each and every moment, uh, which each, each and every breath. So this week I had like uh, gotten some some news, which was uh, which was a uh, kind of a difficult uh, to um, find peace find peace with it. Uh, but I, and I actually it was two incidents. I'm not going to get into the nature of them, but two incidents. And what I realized that. Um, as I was feeling uh, sad, um, I realized that, well, because I, I was actually experiencing uh, impermanence. And I was, again, this, the sadness, the initial sadness, Dhamma meets you where you are. So I was dealing with the, uh, the sadness and uh, realizing, again, uh, and getting gaining an understanding more so of impermanence and I know that's the Dhamma you know and I know that's I know uh, I know of impermanence but when it hits you it hits home then it's really takes it takes dedicated Dhamma practice uh, knowing that that impermanence does exist and uh, I started, I took my dog out for a walk, and uh, as these things were going on in my mind, you know, I, I, I breathed in and out, and uh, each, each out breath I was like letting go, letting go of that which was troubling my mind. And it, it brought me to a place of acceptance and... Uh, It doesn't change the fact that, you know, uh, things that brought these feelings uh, or made these feelings arise have changed in any way, but it made me understand that, like, impermanence is, is something that we really have to understand and as it relates to, to our own lives, and we have to uh, comprehend it as, as Dhamma practitioners uh, and not understanding and understand that these feelings, they're arising now, but they too shall pass with impermanence. So, I also like uh, what what Brett had said. He said that uh, he's not happy with what things that he was happy with in the past. He's not happy with now. Uh, that's so true of uh, uh, 
I myself have experienced that. I, I think, uh, speaking for Julia, I think she could say the same thing. There's a, a recognition there where you, again, uh, to be redundant, uh, it's so important. The Dhamma meets you where you are. So uh, at each moment, what do I do in that moment? I practice the Dhamma. And it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not going to, I'm not going to rise up and have a happy face, you know, uh, going through life all the time, but I'm going to accept what occurs as it occurs and uh, live my life according to uh, Buddha's blessings. Thank you. Yeah. Outstanding, Michael. That, what you described was probably the best example of practical Dhamma practice ever presented here. It really was. That, it's right there where you're, where, you're, where your feelings are arising, you're taking things personally, and you recognize it, and then you just let yourself feel it. Right? So you, it's an exquisite feeling to, to be able to feel sadness and not have it to be any different, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's almost I like mean, the first time you feel it. It's, you know, it's actually, uh, I kind of, as, you know, Julie and I, we, 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 we read uh, the material and uh, we delve deep into it and it starts to, the concepts are starting to come to the surface, especially like with impermanence. Uh, and the reality of impermanence, it's so, uh, it's, a, it's a strong thing, you know, to, when it, yeah. it's not an easy, it's not an easy, uh, uh, an easy road to travel down, but, again, uh, the Buddhist teaching makes it, makes it a lot more acceptable, well, you know, so you, both of you give yourself all of us but give yourself a lot of credit because you've done it you've done the hard work you know, and this is the result of it much more to do much more to do my friend yeah. much more to do yeah but it's fun though isn't it at least it's it's uh, well maybe not maybe it's not fun all the time but it's really the only thing we can do so. <laughs> yes I agree Brian how are you tonight I'm good thank you I, uh, I have good news we have Hey, congratulations. That's outstanding. So that's uh, yeah, just the, the other side of Michael's curve. Of just, you know, letting that hit you and the excitement hit you, but not not trying to overreact or overattach to it. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that's, that's it. That's the, that's the fifth noble truth. You can go crazy over your own kids okay. and grandkids. <laughs> um, but no, this, this, uh, this suit is just fantastic. It's, it's like a, a roadmap or a blueprint. Don't necessarily get all the pieces of the blueprint just yet, but um, the four foundations of mindfulness, I've been really honing in on that and really see the uh, efficacy of that in my own practice. So, so I, again, thank you for your teaching. Appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, and again, congratulations. That's wonderful. Thank you. Uh, well, okay, we'll, uh, we'll continue with this suit and we'll conclude it on uh, Saturday, and then we'll conclude this this study on Tuesday with the Upada Sutta. Um, and then you're going to have to stay tuned and see what's coming up. But I think it will be Dhamma. I think we'll have Dhamma classes in the future. So, uh, we'll finish with Metta as we always do. I can find it. Does anybody have any um, negative comments on the new format for the uh, newsletter? You can tell me how wonderful it is, but really, what I'd like to know, is it easy to use and you're finding it a little more useful than it was in the past? 
And if you have nothing to say, that's okay too. Yeah, I find myself um, doing fewer um, keystrokes, and, and you know, it's it's much more direct now. Right. That's yeah. That's that was the intention anyway. Yeah. So okay. I, not good. that I do a lot with with the uh, with the email. I just you know, I look at what's what's being taught coming up, and I can go right right to it, and I'll print it out and. and that's it. So, as far as that's concerned, it's right. set up. Yeah. No confusion with dates or anything anymore, I hope. That's cool. So I finally yes. figured out the, yeah. how I can. I've been trying to figure out how to put a, a date tag in it that would just populate it, you know, on the fly. And I finally mm -hmm. did. So. Um, all right, we'll finish with meta, as we always do. So, again, take a moment to become mindful of your in breath and your out breath. And these are the Buddha's words on meta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.